Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning. Uh, sorry. Go, go. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to um, Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it's Friday morning um, on the 13th of July, and it's 7am. Um, and we're going to pay our respects to the um, traditional of the land. We pay our respects to elders of the uh, and the traditional owners of the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation. Um, this land was never ceded, and we are broadcasting from stolen land and it always was um always will be aboriginal land thank you yeah um so actually that um segs quite nicely into um what i've been up to for like the past um several days um the student sustainability conference um happened um from this um, last Friday um, all the way to Wednesday. Um, Yes, so it's a, just to give a bit of background, I mean, we did it, we did it. You didn't have a venue last time we spoke about it. Yes, so we actually did, um, ended up securing a venue on Wednesday before the Friday of the conference. Oh, God. Um, So the conference was at Polytechnic. um, Fairfield. Fairfield. And, um, yeah, over 300 um, activists um, attended this conference. And um, the conference was overall, you know, quite a great experience. It's one of the few conferences um, that brings together a lot of the youth um, who are involved in the environmental collectives and the environmental movement um, and also other social justice campaigns um, together. Um, one of the one of the main kind of um, features of the conference is its strong focus on um, Aboriginal rights and Aboriginal sovereignty. Um, so every pla- um, plenary and panel, um, which was kind of the all-in sessions, had a big focus on you know Aboriginal sovereignty um, and had you know Aboriginal elders and activists speaking about you know their experiences and their fight back for their land. Um, so that was. Really good, um, you know. With the fourth um, um, in the last plenary, you know, we heard from different Aboriginal activists who are involved in kind of the fight, the um, frontline fight against the Adani coal mine. Mm. Um, we also got to hear, you know, about their vision of kind of like a future in terms of like decolonising um, our kind of, you know, Australian society. And I think also another kind of overwhelming. Um, message, I think, you know, that a lot of the Aboriginal, you know, this is what I kind of got from a lot of the Aboriginal activists and elders is that, you know, um, for us non-Aboriginal people, we need to be there in numbers, you know, to support and stand up for, um, for and their struggle. And, you know, we're, we're never going to win this, um, alone. We actually have to unite and fight, uh, especially in the, especially against, um, especially unite against, you know, the fight for the, against this coal mine, you know, you know, the fight, you know, to 
free refugees from detention and of course the fight you know for abru- for you know a treaty that is actually you know just and not like a tokenistic kind of thing like what the kind of Victorian state government is attempting to push and implement and that was something that was kind of common frame from what Lydia Forbes who was one of the speakers um at one of the preliminary sessions spoke about and um other aspects about the conference um there were a number of workshops and um sessions um the workshops and sessions range from um different campaigns um for example the forest collective which is something we're going to be we're going to be doing an interview with um later on on about this campaign uh there was also the campaigns against um the coal mines um campaigns about um, renewable energy and fighting for a sustainable future but more specifically there was also i mean one of the more highlights of the conference was um there was a workshop on the global village um which is almost sort of a bit hard to describe it's almost like a cooperative um that's set up by two sociologists um at the charles Stuart University in Albury, mm-hmm. um, and it's basically kind of like a fr- uh, a free op shop that's um, that relies on kind of like volunteers, but it's also a kind of democratic kind of space that empowers kind of the most impressed and marginalised people in society because this shop is actually situated within the poorest parts of Albury. Um, that was probably one of the highlights of the conference, and there was also a panel on housing and homelessness, which I spoke at, and we could possibly play a recording of my speech um, at a later radio program, um, but it also... Or any of the others, yeah. them, really. Yeah, and it was also play... Um, Lee Rhiannon, um, uh, Green's New South Wales parliamentarian, also spoke, and also Spike from the Homeless Persons Union, who also is a host of a program here, Ruminations, which mm. airs at 12pm um, every Thursday. So that was a very good panel where we sort of talked about you know, the inherent crisis of the housing system. And also 3CR um, and Green Left Weekly, Work together to do a bit of workshop on, you know, activist media. Great. Um, and yeah, so there, it was generally, you know, I'll generally say it was a great experience. Um, I've been to SOS for like the past four years, and so this was probably politically, I'd say this is probably one of the strongest conferences. Although unfortunately, I don't think its attendance was. It was still a big conference, you know, 300 people, That's still good. a lot. I um, mean, they all come from different states and. Um, cities, um, but unfortunately it was, it's a bit of a drop from Newcastle's 500 people that attended, but I imagine the reason for that was because, um, a lot of the organisers didn't really have the time to be able to put the word out because they spent so much time trying to get this venue to, um, um, but actually just something to comment on that, um, because I have a bit of inside story on the venue, um, on what actually happened. So, what had happened was, and um, this is probably worth following up in terms of like making broader points about, you know, um, privatisation and corporatisation of our universities. Um, it was originally meant to be at La Trobe University in Bondura. Yep. Um, they basically, um, La Trobe University, you know, signed agreements and said, yep, you have the right to be able to do this. However, on the onset, there were Charging sixty to eighty thousand um, dollars to book the venue, and this is for a not-for-profit conference. Um, and but even were and even yeah, so there were, uh, we kind of negotiate. I think um, along the process because um, I've been 
I'm involved with the, some of the organisation and sort of I followed some of the organisational mm. things that were happening there. But what happened next is we sort of negotiated it to be like 30 to 40,000 down the track, which is still very expensive. And I think it's a bit Child. outrageous um, to charge a not-for-profit organisation. And young people who that, want to do something. That makes time. even probably less money than most charities yeah. <laughs> um, that much. And the other thing was um, apparently the events manager, the people that handled the bookings weren't actually communicating with the rest of the departments of the Shrove University. So what had happened in, in, in the last week is two departments um, made objections to the fact that we're, because one of the um, features of student sustainability is that we use the Oval to set up camp. Um, and what had happened is two departments raised this objection in the last, only last week. And so the venue ended up, they had to, La Trobe University had to say we're dropping the venue. So it took a lot of last minute calling and phone calling, but we managed to secure, um, a core Fairfield Polytechnic, which was significantly cheaper, um, than like apparently six thousand, five thousand to six thousand. Yeah, that's expensive. Yeah. It's still, that's still pretty expensive. Well, yeah, five thousand six hundred is still much more reasonable yeah. than fifty thousand. NGO yeah. and a country yeah. of three hundred people. Yeah, um, but um, just on the last thing to say about the conference is on the Wednesday, um, there were um, all the students um, beforehand throughout the conference had organised a number of direct actions, and so um, on Wednesday we had organised um, we um, students entered and shut down the CBD offices of BHP, um, yes, the Board Force, yeah. and Melbourne University, and of course, they were protesting a number of things here. Um, they were protesting um, the organisation's role in the abuse and torture of refugees, um, research and development of military co- technology, and the destruction of the climate. And, of course, um, one of the things about organising these actions, and it's kind of like a major kind of theme of SOS, and the students aimed, aimed to kind of highlight the kind of interlinked depression of the system upheld by the governments, universities and corporations that fuel the neoliberal agenda via corporatism, militarism, the violent oppression of human rights, the abuse of refugees and the deliberate destruction of the environment. Um, so yeah, those actions kind of lasted yes, all well, day. Um, yeah. in terms of what came out of some of them, um, I think the only thing unfortunately that came out of the border force action was they disrupted some bi- business as usual and, um, four people got arrested, uh, but I presume they'll get off, um, with no charges. Um, but watch Hopefully. their space just in case. Yeah. Um, the BHP, oh, they changed yeah. the law, haven't they? Um, they, um, the activists had also, um, organized, um, some of the activists, when one of the actions finished up, I think the BHP action might have been the one to finish up the earliest. Um, a lot of those activists went in protest outside Richard Wynne's office in support of the the fight um, for the um, to preserve the sacred tree in Ararat, yes, yes. and which got probably like fifty to you know, eighty students um, protesting with banners outside. Um, and just talking about the Melbourne University action, um, that was the one I was involved in. And so what happened was. We blockaded the first administrative office and then the vice chancellor went and sent everyone else to this other office on near, on Grattan Street near sort of Queensbury. And, um, we had then blockaded that office too and blocked all the entrances. And what eventually happened, it was, um, is the vice chancellor eventually just let everyone, all the workers just <laughs> leave work early. Um, but then actually what had happened, um, because the students had, we kept occupying them and blockading the main administration building. Sort of the de- 
um, just to give a bit of background, the main um, the main thing we're protesting was the fact that the Melbourne University um, has made a deal with um, Lockheed Martin mm. uh, and promised to build a bit of a weapons lab oh, God. Uh, or some kind of research lab. So, but we don't know what they're going to be actually researching. But it will likely be research that will be used, you know, to produce weapons. Yeah. Um, and so there has been a sort of campaign group that has. Um, that has formed in support response to this, which is Lockout Lockheed. Um, and so, so the demands were, were, we obviously want to, uh, break, to just, um, break up the contracts, but we also need to, what, um, what is troubling is we don't actually know any specific details of what this deal kind of entails. Mm-hmm. And so one of the demands was that we want some kind of transparency and freedom of information, yeah. um, which, uh, um, which is probably would lay the basis to actually push further to for the to make it's the good. case of Melbourne University to break. So actually, after almost an entire day, this is just um, from the Green Left Weekly article that was written about it. Um, after almost an entire day of collective effort and with the students threatening to blockade the building again the next day, um, the university finally agreed to meet four students to discuss the contract with Lockheed Martin. Um, they will not show the contract with um, Lockheed Martin to the students, but they're willing to discuss what primary and secondary research will be cut conducted on the site, as well as a timeline for the laboratory's construction and location. And of course, this is kind of the first time a Vice-Chancellor of Research has met any activist student group. So, you know, this is a step kind of forward and we'll see what the what Lockout Lockheed, um, the activist group, will be able to um, work with um, following this meeting. So we'll mm. have to give a bit Sounds of update. Like, uh, a lot of things have happened then. It's actually it's, it's great to see young people doing that because um, I've just been following the... Um, uh, U.S. a little bit, and after the the previous um, election of I think it's Cortez, the woman who beat the other Democrat for the um, what do you call it, the primaries as they call it, and there's another young woman standing against another Democrat elsewhere. So this has come out of that students uprising after the shooting. A lot of young people are joining up political parties and they're starting to actually take up leadership roles mm. and encouraging people to vote because that. 10% difference between Cortez and, and yeah. the Demo- old Democrat is, is indicative of the fact that yeah. if young people are determined and, and get involved and do more, they can win it. This is, this is not, not a, uh, it is something they can win. It's winnable. You mm. know? I think, um, just That's one good. thing I just want to note is, um, one session that was featured at, um, Student Sustainability and which relates to this, um, lockout, Lockheed. Um, is there's a new kind of national campaign for universities being set up and developed, which is called Disarm Unis. Okay. Um, so the idea is to basically create sort of resources and a bit of national coordination around um, campaigns that involve um, protesting and um, bringing to account universities for the deals that they make with potential weapons manufacturers and so on. Um, and so because all the, there's all these different campaigns happening across at different universities where they're attempting to find out what what deals are the universities making and um, try, attempting to sort of yeah. get these universities to be to disarm uni. It's actually called disarm uni. Disarm uni. Um, and so you can find that on the web? Yeah, Disarm Uni. And um, we, I think, probably at the start of the second Is semester... Is uni or university, sorry? Uh, I think just to search Disarm Uni or Disarm University and I think yeah. you'll get it. And you need to tell uh, listeners who may want to um, 
listen to or read about the SOS conferences? Are they going to put some of those uh, talks on the web so people can listen to it, or is it what, 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 was there any arrangement made? There, there is um, there is some stuff available on the Student Sustainability Facebook page yeah. and also the Australian Student Environmental Network page, um, which is all on Facebook. Yeah. Um, there's also a website as well. Um, just just That's one good. thing to highlight just about the Disarm Unis is I think potentially we will look to do um, a kind of interview um, about this probably at the start of the second semester, sort of just to give a um, bit of insight and who can arm students with, um, you know, the information about the campaign and how they can get involved because it's looking to be something that could really mobilise university students in, uh, in a serious way. Yeah. Well, something's got to get the kids moving because it's the young people who want to change things. for the f- It's their future they're defending. And... Um Okay, you heard that. Listeners, um, fight for your mic. And our program has almost achieved 90%, but we need to take the home run on this one. So uh, people out there who are listening, who enjoy our, enjoy our program, um, we would appreciate great, greatly if you could um, even ten $10 in because it's, it's just something that we need to um, achieve to keep this program running and keep it on air. Uh, please ring 94198377 and make a donation, whatever you can afford, $5. You know, anything over $2 is tax deductible. Um, we are fighting for a mic, so hopefully you will help us um, maintain this program on the long run. Okay, Jacob, next. Um, there's, there's a major issue here that came out this week. There are lots of, lots of issues going on with um, uh, you know, Trump stirring the pot as usual. Mm. But I want to focus on this one locally, the right to protest. Now, if you um, have been following the news, there were moves by the Turnbull government to um, uh, you know, have legislation against protesters. You can go to jail for protesting up to 15 years, depending on what sort of judges you get and, and what sort of trials you get and so on. So Sam Wayne write, writes about this. Um, so it says, um, under the, the, the guise of national interest, they're, they're talking about now, what, um, they are talking about now is not the welfare of working people or the natural environment, but the long-term needs of Australian capitalism, which they both serve. So it is with the Espionage and Foreign Intelligence Interference Bill that the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Bill, both of which passed the Senate on the 28th of June, uh, when it was first tabled, the legislation provoked a huge outcry because of its potential to incriminate journalists and whistleblowers. Some of the worst measures in this regard were removed in the course of the secret negotiations between Labour and the Coalition before the amendment, amended versions were sprung on the Senate with only a few minutes' notice. However, the bill still retained some of the most significant assaults on civil liberties in decades. So the new um, law describes any action that caused economic damage. So all those activities by animal liberationists who have um, invaded uh, some f- animal farms and even, even, even the um, whistleblowers who, who um, climbed the uh, opera house to, to protest about the refugee, treatment of refugees, uh, all those, those things that people, young people get involved in to, to protest about, uh, you can be charged under the, the economic damage um, description. Um, and such as blocking access to the building, as sabot- they can 
classified as sabotage, and uh, critical infrastructure has been replaced with public infrastructure, which could be taken to mean any public building or privately owned infrastructure. The penalties include even seven years jail for planning such action and 20 to 25 years jail for participating in it. So we are mm. stuffed. You mm. can't do anything. <laughs> you breathe and you, get, you go to jail. Mm. So more than you would get for murdering someone, especially women. And this is su- such a contrast in, in mm. a society that's so sexist, so anti-democratic in, in its nature yeah. at the moment. I think just, uh, um, just my experience and just my knowledge of how some of these laws are kind of implement, have been implemented in the past is it's actually still, still be important to, you know, I mean, what kind of selling McManus said, you know, if a, if a law is unjust, you know, yes, should it's be broken. Yes, it's our duty to rebel. It's our yeah. duty to rebel. But one of the things I think in practice of what actually happens with some of these laws is when it comes to kind of um, protest, um, if you have a massive protest um, with like, you know, thousands yes. of people in low laws, they can't do anything. well, they can't really do anything because think about the kind of <laughs> legal costs and the massive and amount. They, and they need big jails. And jails <laughs> that they would need to be able to arrest every single protest without being able to, or charge them because, yeah, mm. and since essentially we have strengths in numbers. However, what uh, I think maybe an implication of these laws is, you know, for people who have organised, you know, small actions, they will be under much more direct attack than they, we, than they have before. Um, but I guess the important thing is it's always interesting, just a bit of political analysis on this, is it's always interesting how they always, all these kind of repressive laws are always kind of justified um, in the kind of, on the basis of national security, um, that there's some kind of unseeming kind of threat um, of terrorism uh, in inspirage and foreign interference, and they always and governments always like to play this up and exploit it to of essentially course. attack our ordinary our, our ordinary rights protests, which basically yeah. means that I think you know we should reject any kind of this any sort of this whole whole uh, concept of national interest because ultimately um, our allegiances should be you know to the people of the world to the workers of the world kind of thing and not to our governments who clearly have no interest in respecting or standing up for our rights. So a couple of things here too. They say that, you know, it's pretty easy to see that almost all effective non-violent protests could be captured by this wording. There is no doubt that the coalition was um, partly motivated by its desire to to protect unconventional gas coal mining and other environmentally destructive industries from increasingly large and effective protest actions. So the coalition and Labour place the loyalties to the mining and fossil fuel industries above all else. And only to complete um, a complete deal would trust the current or future Attorney General to apply the new law in the general interest of Australian people. So it's, this, is, this is getting more serious now. Um, and, and, you know, Unless people protest, they will continue to use this. And they have used archaic laws in the past to, to put people in jail for prolonged periods or a variety of um, protests and things. But this is getting um, really in your face, so to speak. But, it, you know, in terms of spending money on stuff like this, I was just listening to Donald Trump and his uh, little wobbly he threw with the European um, Union and the NATO um, thing. He says, oh, uh, the U.S. has been um, being bullied because we have... Uh, uh, for, uh, we have we have foot, footed, wrong word, foot 
That's the past tense for footed. Anyway, they, they've been providing 90% of the budget for NATO apparently, and, and he wants the EU governments to spend more money on weapons. Here we are. You've got a, a, a world of thousands and thousands of refugees in Europe and Asia, Rohingyas included, and, and the people on Nauru. From, from Australia to, to, to America, you've got refugees who've got no food, nowhere to stay. And instead of talking about people in need, he's talking about weapons. And I was thinking this morning, what, he, uh, what are they protecting against? Who are they protecting and, and against whom? Uh, are there billions of dollars being spent to buy weapons? They want the budget commitment, a budget commitment to uh, increase uh, um, armament spendings. Because USA spends about 50% of their budget on weapons. In other words, the, the military industry is profiting enormously by this. I'm just wondering, just wondering, if the Trump conglomerate has interest in selling weapons. And that's my suspicion. But that's just something that came to mind. I'm thinking, you know, the, the, the controlling of, of protest, the controlling of society, engineering the whole way uh, society operates and who spends what on, on, on whom um, is it, becoming more and more transparent as this goes on. People must be able to connect all these things to understand there's a whole system out there without being conspiracy theorists. This is, this is just appalling um, the way they treat people. But anyway, that's just one of the, the major events in Australia um, and, and it, it's a trend. You can see it happening all over the world. But I think it's, it's starting to bite here in Australia, and people need to be, uh, I guess, very aware of it. And on the note of being um, um, on the same vein in relation to who spends what on, on and how, um, and which, who are the people who are, who are supported and so on, I think we need to take note that um, Australia has just axed aid to the Palestinian Authority. The Australian government on the 3rd of July announced that it had axed its contributions to the Palestinian Authority through the World Bank's multi-donor trust fund. This is not direct, it's through another organization for the Palestinian Recovery and Development Program and has been condemned by the Palestinian activists. The Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network said the Australian government has given into the extremist elements of its party, the same people who want to move um, the Australian embassy to Jerusalem, to some, some summarily um, ex-funding to the PA without any evidence of misuse of funds is draconian and shows whose side the government is on. The government talks of supporting a two-state solution yet undermines Palestinian rights at every turn. So this is how the money is spent. You know, you, you spend it on Israel and, and support all Israeli projects and, and um, support them politically, uh, nationally and internationally, um, while you cut funding for the Palestinians who are suffering genocide in the hands of the Israelis. So that really annoyed me. So I had to share that with listeners. Mm. You've just tuned in. Um, just a reminder uh, that the um, radiothon is still not quite complete yet. We would um, request that uh, those who can afford it to um, donate um, whatever amount of money to support 
um, this program remain on air. Anything over two dollars is uh, tax deductible. And thank you for your support. Now, Jacob, you've got something interesting—a story about uh, someone in jail in Bulgaria, which is a bit. We never talk about Bulgaria. It's a bit obscure. Tell us what the story is. Okay, so the story is, um, this is, um, it's actually uh, been a story that Green Left Weekly has been covering quite intensively for like the past 10 years. But we have a, another article about it, and there's even a book um, actually written about it by um, the parents of um, of of the prisoner. Um, so this is just a bit of an article about Jock, Jock um, Powell Freeman. Um, he's, he was a, he's an Australian-born um, prisoner rights activist in Bulgaria, um, and he's launched a kind of international appeal um, for, the prisoners, um, for the prisoner support group he helped establish from inside Sofia prison. Um, and just to give a bit of background, he, um, has been in pris- he has been in prison for more than 10 years on, you know, shrimp dump kind of murder charges and mm. you know to kind of summarize i he, what he essentially did was defend someone against outright far right fascist um and but the pers- but the apparent the fascist was apparently connected to someone important and powerful and so this is where we kind of are now um so he but you know ever since he's been in prison for more than 10 years um but he's also before he um visited bulgaria he was actually also known as a bit of an activist um and quite activist. yeah and quite active in resistance um so um he used that kind of experience um in setting up um the bulgarian um prisoner rights association um which you know, has played a role in successfully changing, um, changing the law. Um, but now prison authorities are unhappy. Um, they're accusing him of promoting hate speech. Um, they say, <laughs> that's a joke. They say B, they, well, this is, um, if you, if you're laughing at that, you would say he, they say that BPRA stickers sporting the well-known slogan, when injustice becomes the law, resistance becomes a duty as evidence. So that's my favorite um, slogan. <laughs> um, hate speech. So unfortunately, as a result, um, Powell Freeman has been stripped of privileges for two years, he has been prevented from continuing his university studies. His visits have been severely limited and he has not allowed any of the supervised leave he had been granted. He is also prevented from doing um, paid work. Um, <clears throat> that's inside the prison. Yeah. So the, together, I guess, um, he set up the first prisoners, Bulgarian Prisoners Union in 2010. Um, and in 2012, it was officially registered, an important step in legitimizing work. Um, but of course, as a result, all this kind of repression, um, repression and so on. And, um, so one of the, basically, I guess what's happening that, you know, um, Powell Freeman is attempting to launch a bit of an international appeal for support. Mm. Um, and I think you can find, if you search Jock Powell Freeman in Google, spell that, spell that for, J-O-C-K for the first name, and Powell Freeman is P-A-L free man. Yep. So I highly suggest um, searching. But there's, yeah, there's quite a lot in here. Yeah, and this has been a kind of international campaign that Green Left Weekly has been running for years, and we've been covering it consistently for the past 10 and always been attempting to kind of have as much solidarity, um, express our kind of solidarity north, but also figure out ways of practically supporting him mm. uh, in prison because I think, you know, there's there's clear significance, I guess, in this, the fact that he attempted to organise the other prisoners and set up a bit of a prisoners' union to fight for their rights because 
the, their treatment is, you know, is an outright kind of violation of human rights. Yeah, it's a disgrace, isn't it? If, if, it, if it all becomes too much, they throw you into prison. And um, talking about the injustices in society, um, what, last week, the second lot of penalty rate cuts came into effect. And the government has voted six times against legislation or amendments that will reverse the cuts to penalty rates. In the meantime, politicians have had a pay rise. And uh, I think, yes, last night it was announced that Barnaby Joyce hadn't, uh, you know, breached any rules of parliament while he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars traveling and paying for accommodations, even with his girlfriend at that time, I think. And it's all in the clear. So in, in terms of the everyday worker, uh, the latest rounds of penalty rate cuts um, will reduce and the public holiday penalty rates of, for staff in the retail, hospitality and pharmacy sector. It will reduce by 10 to 15% from the 1st of July. And it's obviously it's, it would have come in. And some employers have actually uh, decided not to do that, which is... Um, a smart thing to do because they lose the workers if that's what they're doing. It's estimated that Australian Council of Trade Unions, um, that 700,000 workers would be affected. So the Shop Distributive and Allied Employed Employer, Employees Association National Secretary Gerard Dwyer said that the penalty rate cuts would cost many retail and fast food workers between 2000 and 6000 a year, which is ridiculous when these young people are trying to, to survive have to pay for their, their, their uni fees, have to pay for accommodation, pay for everything while they're studying. And many of these retail works is done by young people. Um, and, of course, anyone who's trying to make a living out of this, this meager um, you know, wages, if you're, you have to pay rent, you've got to pay all the bills that come in, they're not going to survive. And this is going to make push some of them into, into working people's poverty uh, group. That's what it's going to be. The ACTU Secretary Sally McManus labelled the cuts wrong and unfair. She, wanted, she warned they will not only hurt working people but also harm the economy. So we are going back to, a, to backwards as a country, she said, and, need, and we need, what we need is um, for some of our hardest working, lowest paid workers to be dealt penalty rate cuts. Um, the last thing we want is that, she said. So um, the penalty rate cuts took effect the same day as the Prime Minister and his ministers awarded themselves a pay rise of $10,000 each. Mm. We, sh- we should become politicians, um, Jacob, I reckon. Mm. We, we will earn good money, hey? Yeah, $10, well, you have to do rise. a lot of um, <laughs> deal-making and stepping over people. Dealing and dealing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, McManus noted the penalty Red cuts would not help small business, as claimed by the government and business leaders, but would instead boost profits for big business. So this is a heart-wrenching, heartbreaking um, thing that government's doing to our people, ordinary working people. So something's got to break soon. Otherwise, this trend of shutting us up with their laws and cutting our wages will keep going on. We've got to do something about it. And if you're not a trade union member, I, su- I suggest that. Um, think about, you know, how you can join and make it a union that is going to meet your needs. So I won't go any further into that because I get so angry. Um, and, of course, we've got the SO and UGL workers who have been fighting for over a year now 
um, which is also described in, in, in Greenland weekly about the details of, of their fight and how they've survived um, with donations that have been coming in for them. Um, they aim to get about 25,000 something. It, 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 it went over 30,000, 36,000 on, on Facebook. So they are being supported by the community, by donations, but they have kept up the fight and they have refused to, to, to cut out of the company that was going to cut their wages by up to 60% in some cases. All right. Um, welcome to New South Wales. Leave your liberties at the door. What does that mean? So another fundamental um, liberty of the people of New South Wales took a hit on the 1st of July. Um, on the day, a new regulation under the Crown Land Management Act 2016 took effect, granting the New South Wales government wide power to dis- disperse or ban protests, rallies, and virtually any public gatherings across about half of all land across the state. So this is a, another arm of this, the thing we were talking about earlier. So New South Wales is doing it doing more on its own as a state from what we understand so someone's holding a placard here saying New South Wales police state which is very appropriate for this action uh, looks of it and the other thing I think we, we haven't talked enough about and the mainstream media hasn't actually even bothered to give it any prominence is the um, uh, ACES whistleblower and lawyer who faced charges under spy laws mm. um, so do you want to talk about that? Shall I do? Shall I do? Um, I got to get, get um, ready for the next interview soon. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'll do this one. So the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, Sarah McNaughton, has recently, uh, McNaughton SC, uh, recently filed criminal charges against Canberra lawyer Bernard Colliery and his client, a former officer of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service (ACES). The Intelligence Service Act 2001 prevents an identification the identification of his client, um, who is referred to as pu- uh, publicly only as Witness K. Uh, Colleri is a former Attorney General of the ACT. Witness K is reported to be the former head of the of technical uh, operations of ACES. The charges are based on Article 39 of the Intelligence Services. The maximum prison term for this alleged offence is two years. <coughs> Excuse me, the first... Directions hearing will be heard on the 25th of July. The relevant background is that three months before East Timor became, became an independent state in 2002, then Foreign Minister Alexander Downer withdrew Australia from maritime boundary um, jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice and the International Tribunal on the Law of the Seas. East Timor could not claim its right under the international laws and we knew that. We have covered this story before actually. So it was forced to negotiate bilaterally with with Australia. Downer then allegedly ordered ACES to bug East Timor's negotiations. Um, ACES installed uh, listening devices inside East Timor's cabinet offices using the cover of foreign aid program. East Timor signed a treaty and denied, um, denied that, um, let's have a look here, I've just lost my trend of um, the article. Anyway, Isimo signed a treaty that denied it its right to maritime border on the median line. Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, Dr. Ashton Calvert, um, then retired and joined the board of directors of Woodside Petroleum. Downer took a lucrative um, consultancy with uh, Woodside after leaving Parliament in 2008. So it's been reported that Woodside uh, Chairperson Charles Good 
state that boards of top uh, lib- liberal party fun- fun- fundraising vehicles that ge- generated millions of dollars in political donations. The espionage operation occurred at the same time as the Australian embassy in Jakarta was bombed by the uh, Jamaa Islamiyah terrorist group when Downer and the Prime Minister, then Prime Minister John Howard were <coughs> assuring public, the public that they were taking every measure against extremist Muslim terrorists in, in Indonesia. So, in 2013, Kalori took steps to have Witness K give evidence about the operations in a confidential overseas hearing. The Australian Security Intelligence, ASIO, raided the two men's offices, seized the documents and data, and cancelled case passport. So this case is going to be heard um, on the on the 25th, and we'll give an update on that. So it's it, it's just amazing that a former Attorney General of ACT is, is being put through the mill uh, because the government has been caught with its um, <clears throat> finger in the pie, so to speak, uh, trying to um, cover up issues that were uh, against East Timor's interest are one of the poorest and the, and the newest nations in the world. Okay, on that note, let's um, go to our, to our first interview for the morning. Uh, now, do you want to introduce um, the uh, speaker, Jacob? All right. So on the line we have um, Maggie Ridderton. Um, um, she is um, the um, one of the coordinators of the Friends of the Earth um, kind of forests um, collect, um, campaigns, which which is kind of known as the Friends of the Earth um, Forest Collective. Um, so we have her on the line to talk to um, talk about kind of the kind of issues affecting forests right now. Um, so good morning, Maggie. Good morning. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. Um, so I guess the first question we want to ask is, can you give us a bit of background on some of the political issues um, affecting forests, and I guess in terms of logging? Um, and, yeah, we'll go start from there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first thing to know is that we still have a native forest logging industry in Victoria. Many people aren't aware that we're actually chopping down the beautiful um, mountain ash forests of Victoria to make pulp for single-use office paper, so in this case, reflex ultra-white paper. Um, so that means that we're cutting down habitat for endangered animals. We're cutting down the forests that provide our water catchment, so these forests provide over 98% of Melbourne's water supply. They're also the most carbon-dense forests in the world, um, and yet, as I said, they're being logged for, for paper pulp um, and also being logged at an alarming rate. Um, so it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty terrifying thing that we're doing to our precious forests considering all the values that they hold. Um, but the two main drivers or, um, the two most pro- most prominent drivers, as I said, is that demand for paper pulp. Um, and then there's also legislation that actually exempts the state-based, um, logging agency, which is Vic Forest, from our federal environment laws. Um, so it's legislation that's called the a Regional Forest Agreement. And it's an agreement between the state and federal governments that, as I said, allows public logging, um, allows logging on public native forests and exempts the agency from environmental laws. So it hands responsibility for environmental protection to the state. Um, and those agreements are one of the reasons that we've seen such a, um, a terrible <laughs> terrible results in our native forests where they're being logged at, a, at an alarming rate. 
And so what are kind of some of the specific kind of um, forests that are kind of being logged right now in Victoria and might be kind of like the some of the focus of your campaign? Yeah, so there's logging right across the state, but the Faux Forest Collective focuses on logging in the Central Highlands. So that's the region that starts sort of, um, it's 90 minutes east of Melbourne, starting around Healesville. A lot of people have been to the sanctuary at Healesville. Um, and so that's the Central Highlands region, and it stretches across to Mount Borbor in the east. And then there's also the forest of East Gippsland, so the far, far east corner of the state. Um, those forests are um, really old. There's incredible number of species and biodiversity in those forests, and they're the ones that are getting um, chopped down for paper. Yeah. And so, um, I guess, what can you tell me about um, what has Friends of the Earth or the Forest Collective been organising, um, what kind of actions and kind of activities you've been doing to kind of build this campaign and kind of build awareness? Yeah, so the Faux Forest Collective has been running for just over a year now, and it's an incredible collective with a huge amount of energy and passion and drive. Um, the main focus of the collective is to have the Great Forest National Park created, so that would be a reserve system that would protect the forests of the Central Highlands. So, like I said, King Lake and Healesville in the west and um, Mount Borbor in the east. And then also to create the Emerald Link, which um, would protect the forests of East Gippsland. And uh, to provide a just transition for workers as well, because we need to be moving people who are currently in the native forest logging industry out of it into plantations and recycled fibres. They're the focuses of the collective. And then to do that, the collective has been out on the street, having conversations with people in the community, um, leafleting houses, you know, getting out there and demonstrating the widespread support for protecting our forests. Um, and in recent years, we've um, been able to ask the community, the Victorian community, um, how they feel about protecting forests and an overwhelming um, over 80% of people support protecting forests rather than <laughs> chopping them down for pulp. Mm. And um, what can, you, can you tell us a bit more in detail about the Great National um, Forest and kind of like the, a bit more about the kind of political campaign, like where is it kind of at in terms of getting support um, for from the political parties, um, you know, because in this coming state election, and I imagine this is... This whole, I've seen this idea of the Great Forest Park being kind of flown around in the media and um, especially um, from your campaign and just wondering what is sort of the, what is sort of the, um, the political kind of dynamics at play in terms of this coming state election. Yeah, uh, so that's a great question. Um, and it's also um, probably inherently tied to the political climate um, from the last state election in 2014. So um, the Great Forest National Park had... Uh, actually gained a lot of political support um, right before the 2014 state election. Um, and then uh, sort of at the last minute, um, the support sort of dwindled away kind of thing. Um, but I think there's still a lot of people um, in parliament and government who want to create it. Um, but there are, you know, there are challenges. Like I said, there are the R dismantling the RFAs. There's also um, the, the reason they're getting chopped down for paper is partially because there's a legislated supply of timber that has to go to the paper mill. So it's actually a really entrenched issue. But having said that, um, so long as there is political will, it can be created, um, and that's what the Forest Collective is doing. They're out there demonstrating to politicians that their constituents care so that 
um, the Labor government, who currently has the power, obviously, to create the Great Forest National Park and the Emerald Link, can actually move on the issue because their constituents care, the majority of Victorians care. Um, all they need to do now is just get on with it. There's really no excuse. Hmm. Um, and maybe kind of like a last kind of question um, is um, maybe some kind of final comments um, about the Forest Collective and maybe a bit of um, bit of information on, you know, because you said it's a very energetic and thriving campaign. Um, how can people, or if um, listeners are listening who are interested in getting involved, get involved? Great. Um, well, it is energetic and we would welcome anyone and everyone who cares about forests to come along. Um, so practically, you can come along to the Friends of the Earth co-op in Collingwood um, to, up, to the upstairs area every second Thursday at 6pm for our Forest Collective meeting. So every second Thursday, 6pm at Friends of the Earth in Collingwood. Um, and it, you can also search um, the Faux Forest Collective and um, you can sign up to volunteer online. Um, and then that way we can be in touch with you about ways that you can get involved. And so um, the next meeting is the 26th of July, on Thursday, 26th of July. Thursday, 26th of July, um, 6pm 6 6 at the Friends of the Earth um, Food Co-op. That's the one. All right. All right. Um, thank you very much, uh, Maggie. Um, that was uh, definitely an uh, informative interview. And, um, yeah, best of luck um, with your campaign and uh, keep, it, keep it going. <laughs> And listeners Wonderful. Who want Thanks so much to. for having me. <laughs> Thank you. And for those uh, listeners interested in joining, you've got the details there, Friends of the Earth, on Smith Street, and you'll find all the details upstairs. Thank you. Bye, Maggie. Catch you later. Yes, I agree with that completely. I work with kids. I know what it's all about. Okay. Now, um, we are going to start the announcement a little bit early because um, there is an extended announcement about one of the events uh, that I want to go into details about. Um, so let's maybe start with that. Is that okay with you? Um, yeah, that should be fine. Okay, it's the Latin American film um, night. It's actually the f- it's called the first cycle. Um, so it's starting today at 6:30 p.m. For those who are interested, it's starting at um, at 5 p.m. Um, at the IRL um, info workshop that is um, 28D Ashley Street, West Footscray. So supporting a great cause. It's entry by donation. No one um, no one can. Um, Oh, it's a funny sort of uh, wording there. Anyway, food and drinks available, and it's a great, great environment and, and friendship, and, and it'll be Latin American food, and you, if you like that Latin American food, that's a good place to get to for tonight if you have nowhere else to go and you want to uh, listen to something interesting. So let's look at the films that are being shown, this amazing stuff. At 6.30 p.m., there's a film um, um, about Colombian Honduras. It's Blood and Earth. Indigenous resistance in the north of um, Coca is 43 minutes long. So it's a documentary about, sorry, it's by Ariel Arongo Prada. Uh, the documentary is about na- the, um, en- the Nasa indigenous people's struggle for resistance in the north of Coca, Colombia, and the process of taking back the ancestral lands from the multinational companies during the 15, 2015 and 16, what they call the liberation of Mother Earth. 
The CRIC, the Indigenous um, Regional Council of Al Kakoa, is one of the pioneering indigenous organize, organized movements of Latin America. And for over 45 years and since colonization, they have fought to defend their autonomy, land and culture. So uh, f- before I go on, I, 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 I ask for... Um, a uh, pardon from people who think I'm mispronouncing any of the names because I uh, don't know Spanish, so it makes it a bit tricky. Okay, the other film tonight, it's, it's being shown at 7.30 p.m. It's um, uh, Resistencia, the fight for the Aguan Valley, uh, Honduras. Seven, it's 91 minutes. So it's by Jesse Freeston. This film follows farmers of the fertile Aguan Valley, who responded to 2009 military coup that ousted President Manuel Zelaya by taking over 10,000 acres of palm oil plantation under illegal control of the most powerful man in the country, Miguel Fucase. No, Fakuse. Um, the farmers established co-ops on the land um, in the face of horrifically um, violent responses from um, Fakuse and his parliamentary security guards. The film follows the story and profile some of the leaders who have resisted this, this violence and continue, fight, continue to fight for their right to land, safety and security and peace. Okay, the third film is um, being shown at 9.30. It's about Berta, and we, we interviewed someone from that organization that Berta had established um, a few months ago, uh, the, the Fierce Environmentalists. So it's a tribute to Berta Caceras, um, a prominent um, activist defender of popular indigenous and environmental rights. Um, Wal- Walmapu. Um, no, so, so that's, that's that one. Uh, so that's the end of um, Friday. So there are three movies. So Blood on Earth, uh, Resistencia, and um, a film about Berta. So there are the three for tonight. For tomorrow, um, it's more about Chile, Mexico, Hon- and Honduras. So Saturday, the 14th, 5 p.m., Walmapu Libre, 42 minutes. Uh, the Mapuche Indi- Indigenous Peoples of Chile and Argentina um, the screening of um, it, this is a documentary made from footage taken from the last five years of Mapuche struggle for their ancestral land and culture in the south of Chile, directed by Diego Humano and produced by La- Lasnet. Some of this would um, premiere, world premiere of this documentary that shows you directly to the heart of the struggle of the land and the life of the Mapu. Um, events in support of um, Ma, the Mapuche spiritual leader Mache Celestino Cordova currently is passing 100 days um, of hunger strike and again today, 20, today 16 days and freedom of, um, for all Mapuche and Chilean political prisoners. The next film um, tomorrow is at 6 p.m. is Muerte Vida, Death is Life by um, Eli Alvarez. Muerte de Vida is the mediation sorry, start again. Uh, meditation on death as part of nature. The film captures a bold and colorful look at Mexico, both the natural world and the vibrant culture, creating an atmospheric exploration of the relationship between mystical journeys of the monarch butterfly, the death of individual people and celebration of the day of death. Few films could connect the world of um, a humble farmer in Mexico and the harsh world of Detective 
um, ground zero, but this one manage, manages to do so with honesty and a dash of poetry, says Danny Boyle. Okay, the next film is Fantastic Woman. Um, it's at 7.30 p.m. Uh, by Sebastian Lelo. It's about LGBT rights. Somewhere in Santiago and Chile, um, at a dimly lit nightclub, Orlando, the kindly and well-owner of a textile company, locks eyes with Marina, a hopeful ginger and roughly half his age, love of his life. But unfortunately, after Marina's birthday celebration and a night of passion, Orlando falls gravely ill and found uh, the following morning um, he dies in hospital. So in the wake of her companion's ultimate, ultimate death, Marina will soon realize that from now on everything is brought into question. Her involvement in uh, Orlando's death, their unconventional, unconventional relationship, and above all, her right to mourn her beloved deceased. So... Um, that should be an interesting one too. So the other film is Galliano Vivel. It's 14 minutes um, by School of Chiapas. The slogan made real in practice every day, uh, Galliano justice, not revenge, remains a living testimony of Galliano's life and contemporary Zapatismo. Uh, likewise, the, f- the fact that sub-commander insurgent Marcos ceased to exist in order to keep Galliano l- alive the river breaks through these jungles and the canyons of Mexican Southeast and all, and it will also be tainted, uh, painted on the walls of the building. So they are the films listeners. So this sounds like a very interesting two evenings of films. So people who live around the area, um, it'll be a great evening tonight, to this, this evening and tomorrow evening. So I'll read out the address again. It's 28D. Ashley Street, West Footscray. Sounds like a great evening. I might go to some of those movies too. Hmm. Okay, now we go on to the, the calendar moment. Yep. So I'll um, um, work, work with some of these announcements. So on Sunday, July the 15th, um, there'll be a rally for the ABC. Um, it's quite basically will be a protest against the ABC, funding cuts, continual political interference against our public broadcaster, and any suggestion of selling off or prioritising the ABC. Um, so it'll feature a number of speakers. It's, it's a bit of an interesting rally um, because apparently you have to pay tickets, $10 or something, uh, to book a spot at the Melbourne Town Hall. Um, so it's at the Melbourne Town Hall Sunday, July the 15th um, at 2pm, and it's hosted by the Media Entertainment and Arts sort of association union, the MEAA, and Friends of the ABC. On Wednesday, July the 18th, there'll be a public meeting, Build Homes, Not Prisoners. Um, and Prisons. Fe- <laughs> yeah. And they'll feature some a range of community speakers um, and also um, Stephen Jolly and also I think it will also be featuring um, Mariki Honest from the Aboriginal community. Um, so that's hosted by Victorian Socialists and Affin Gardens Public Housing Residents Association. So that's at the... Community Hall, Affin Gardens, Public Housing Estate, 140 um, Brunswick Street in Fitzroy um, on Wednesday, um, 6 p.m. Yes, Atherton Gardens, mm. Public Housing Residence, yep. Yeah. Um, on Thursday, July the um, 19th, um, there'll be a, the UMSU Winterfest, an activist history store, um, um, tour. And so this is where you get an opportunity to learn about the decades of radical history at your student union and university campus. Um, so they'll be at 2 p.m. at the Union House, University of Melbourne, and it's hosted by the Environmental Collective and University of Melbourne Student Union. And so that'll be... They'll be happening there. Um, also happening on that Thursday on July the 19th is um, 
If you check the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network, there's quite a famous Palestinian lawyer and speaker. So that'll be on Thursday night, but I don't know, I don't have the details kind of printed here, but I just encourage you to check out the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network, um, to find out the details and book a ticket. On Friday, July the 20th, um, there'll be a performance, um, songs and words with Uncle Jack Charles, um, and it'll be an evening of music and spoken word with the legendary actor, musician, potter and Aboriginal elder Jack Charles, and they'll be at 7pm at the St. Charlie Bar Gardens and Functions, free, which is 386 to 388 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. There'll be a rally, um, Five Years Too Many, which almost kind of marks my anniversary of getting involved in activism because the first rally attended was about this back in July um, 2013. So this July will mark five years since the PNG solution was announced, um, five years of limbo and offshore detention hellholes, two years since Manus was declared legal, and over 1.5 years since US refugee deal was announced, 10 deaths offshore, um, and etc. So they'll be at 2pm at the State Library on Saturday, July the 21st, and it's organised by the Refugee Action Collective. Um, there'll be a public meeting on the Pentridge Prison, Other Voice from the Other Side, um, and they'll be at the Moreland City Library, 1.45pm on July 21st, Saturday. On Monday, July 23rd, there'll be a trivia night beyond um, zero emissions. Um, get your friends together and reduce your carbon footprint by turning off your heating for a night whilst having fun, and they'll be at 6.30pm at the Clyde Hotel. Um, so just a few more announcements to get through here. Um, there'll be a, a film night, um, Wednesday, July 25th, Indigenous Youth Incarceration and Education at 6pm, room 56.04.81, building 56 at RMIT. Um, on Saturday, August the 4th, um, there'll be a fundraiser, send a medical team to Gaza, and there'll be a night of music and entertainment to help send Nurse Riyad Alabu. Hashi and a medical team to Gaza with much needed medical supplies and equipment to help the aiding the injured. And so they'll be happening at the 5pm, the Formberry Theatre at 58859 High Street in Formberry. And it's organised by the Palestinian Community Association of Victoria. Let's move on to the, the, the next interview. Sorry, that was, that was the end of um, announcements for now. Now, we've got a guest in the studio. It's the last day of NADOC Day, basically, isn't it? Um, it is, and what Jai. a beautiful uh, NADOC week it's been. And that very gruffy voice is Jai Desmond, yes? Uh, Jai, Jai Allen Desmond. Yes, so it's a long that's name. That's kind of the formative of my first name and middle name, so then you have a last name after that as well. That's Jai Desmond, that bubbly voice you're hearing there, the young man. Uh, and which is your land here, Jai? Uh, my land is, uh, so it's Mananjali country, um, Yugambeh Nation up in southeast Queensland, yep. so just south of the Logan River. And he's from an organisation called uh, Seed, Seed Mob. Yeah, that's Seed. right, Seed yeah. Mob. So that's what we're here to talk about, as to celebrate the, the culture of this country the original culture of this country. So tell us about your organisation and, and what it's all about. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for, thanks for having me on, on air today. Um, basically, SeedMob is Australia's first Indigenous youth uh, climate network. So uh, we're building a, a, a movement across the nation of uh, young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, to fight and protect country um, because we recognise that um, 
our responsibilities and obligations to to land uh, is threatened uh, every day, of course, uh, with our sovereignty um, challenged um, since colonization. Um, but more than that, um, even still, like today, we have fossil fuel companies uh, in this country who set up to displace mob from land, um, who are able to take our, uh, our culture, our knowledge from us, our languages. Um, and so we at Seed Mob, as youth, we work to lead, um, be the leaders that we want in this country, um, be the leaders that have a voice that is recognised. Um, we aim to uh, for people to recognise that climate change is a black issue um, and it's happening now. It's already affecting us. Um, and then to beat out those fossil fuel companies and say, <laughs> frack off. Um, come up with a better solution because fossil fuels are not good for us um, right now and we need something different. Mm. So tell us, how did you all start? Because I've never heard of it and I've been working in the community for the last eight years. Yeah, sure. And I didn't know you existed. Where have you been or when did you start? Yeah, sure. Where have we been? <laughs> well, I've been part of Seedmob for about a year now. Yeah. Uh, I joined after... I, I've known about Seedmob since about 2015. Yeah. And, so uh, new, yeah. Yeah, it's been going for about four or five years now, and basically our national director, Millie, she had uh, she was part of an organisation called AYCC, the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Okay. And the Australian Youth Climate Coalition is basically uh, under-30s youth who are saying, this is our voice, um, this is our future, and we want to say in what happens in this country environmentally, um, climate change is real, we don't like it, and... Um, and these are the steps that we want um, we want this nation to take to to battle climate change um, because there's a very real future um, that's ahead um, that's very shortly um, that has a lot of impacts on the way that we live now. So Millie Millie was one of two or three uh, Indigenous members of the AYCC, and um, she recognised an opportunity for there to be more Indigenous recognition Good. and Indigenous voices. And uh, out of that, because it is a grassroots movement. Mm -hmm. um, they were able to very successfully uh, create a, like a branch from the AYCC and that seed, which is the Indigenous-led branch. And it's not attached to the ALP? Sorry? It's not attached to the Australian Labour Party? Definitely not. So seed and AYCC are actually nonpartisan. Um, we I'm hold, checking. yeah, <laughs> we hold any party to, um, to, to account for their policy. And, and certainly a really good example of that is, um, the way that we've tackled the, um, the Adani issue, um, holding Anastasia Palaszczuk to account on Twitter and social media and in person. That has been very, very fun. Um, we say no matter what party you are, um, there's really shitty policy um, that's about, and we need to start working on policy in order to um, in order to make real change. Okay, so what is the AYCC or, or SeedMob? Um, what is your view on the the current Labour Party in, in in Victoria? That's why I asked the question before, and the treaty process. How how do you are you part of that, or do you tend to participate if you're not already part of it? Yeah, sure. Okay, so from like an official standpoint. Uh, I, I'm, I would say that uh, C doesn't participate um, in the treaty process. Um, 
However, what we can take from that is um, very recently we made a statement um, when it came to uh, the trees in the Western Highway, um, birthing trees um, that are hundreds of years old that look like they're going to be um, locked down for a highway um, through sacred grounds there. You know, it was very easy for us to stand up and say, well, the right thing is we have a party that says they want to give us treaty by one hand, but on the other hand, they're willing to take our sacred sites and really important knowledge holders in this land, those trees, um, away from the the land um, in order to build infrastructure. And that's not... You know, that doesn't go hand in hand. That's just that's just not right. Mm-hmm. Um, from Seed's point of view, you know, we are grassroots and there are some people that are part of Seed that are very much um, involved in politics as well and, and might want to have their say um, in that further. Um, but for us, I think the statement's very clear. Um, you know, you need to respect Aboriginal people, Aboriginal rights, Aboriginal voices, and, and part of that is the way that we manage land Yes, and, and, and previously when I was talking to you at, during the march last Friday, um, you mentioned that um, the knowledge held by elders is not respected by anyone in Australia at this stage, or if, if, if at all, it's, it's token recognition. So tell us a little bit more about that, because after all, you know, your mob been here for, what, over 60,000 years? Yeah. So explain to me how you bring in that, that view in, in your debates and in your arguments with people who are um, destroying the environment? Yeah, sure. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think, it, you know, it, logically for me, um, the line is we have 60, 60 plus thousand years of knowledge and history mm. here. Um, and are we willing to let 60,000 plus years of knowledge go like that just doesn't make sense to me we have textbooks um and curriculum built around ancient societies around the world um that are just a small percentage have a they're a small drop in the ocean compared to aboriginal knowledge and history and yet we revere them we put them up on a pedestal and people study them for years but our shame issues in this country um our lack of healing our ability to run away um from the truth has stopped us from recognizing um, 60,000 plus years of knowledge. Um, and I think that comes to a detriment. What have we got to lose by learning all of that knowledge? What have, what have we, what have we got to lose when it comes to truth? You know, a society, a civilization that has lasted that long, mm. um, I think, it says a lot for truth in the way that we lived, um, for for it to be around that long. Um, compared, to, especially compared to today, um, we're trying to find truth every single day um, in our colonial societies. We're we're scavenging um, for it, and um, I'm, I've I've got a firm belief that our people, um, they were very firm and knew the truth. Yeah. They're the bank of knowledge. In preserving land, don't they? Yeah, that's and right. And that bank hasn't been opened. And when they try, they've been beaten down. And it's, it's really sad to watch. And, and that, that brings to me to this last question I'm going to ask you, and you can expand on it as much as you like, is that um, there was uh, news about the um, traditional people's ability to fish. And there was this, this mm-hmm. man who was uh, fishing for abalone, and um, it's against the law for non-Aboriginal people to do that. That's what the understanding was. But this is uh, being made into a legal issue um, for um, fishing. And, and the, the mob are, try, are thinking about um, 
<coughs> sorry, launching a claim for land and sea. Um, I don't know if you saw that, but that's that's the sort of oppression that's being revealed in this mm. whole story of, of of traditional people who've lived on on this sort of um, practices for, as you say, more than six thousand years are suddenly being um, threatened with white man's law. So tell me, what do you think about all that? Yeah, my own opinion. And look, this uh, this is um, separate to to maybe seed stance. Yeah, sure. um, but my own opinion on something like that is, um, it's just what we've been fighting for all this time, for 230 years. You know, the fact that... Um, we're born into the society and we have these laws forced onto us, this way of life forced onto us, and we don't have a say. Um, When we're fighting for sovereignty, we're fighting to have our ability to, our ability for freedom to be recognized and and for us to be able to participate um, in that there. I am, when I think about, um, you know, this claim for for land and sea, it's very, um, it's very similar to something uh, called a lodial title. Um, which some mobs are starting to pick up on. Uh, melodial title is... Um, we look at native title, which is a really watered-down version of melodial title. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, land rights um, and native title. Melodial um, title is something that um, a lot of mobs um, are starting to find, at least intellectually, are probably more fulfill- is more fulfilling because it gives you governance over the land, the, the, the airways um, above your land, and also the waters. Um, and it gives us the right to to roam um, within that space and um, practice freely. So, um, you know, I see a future uh, for our people across the nation uh, in something like that. It probably needs more investigation, but certainly the, I'm not going to say the utopia, but the ideal that I think that we have... um, that we have marched for year after year after year uh, on Invasion Day um, at NADOC Week. Um, we we recognise that it's in our blood. We I think that's what we actually are kind of um, marching for overall, that mm-hmm. self-determination, but even that's not even the right word to use. Yeah, it's not. It's a lot more than that. That's right. But, okay, tell us a little bit more about what SEED has been able to achieve in the last, what, three, four years has been running um yeah what, what sort of achievements have you made and give us a picture a picture of seed well let me tell you um can i tell you the number one thing that i found at seed is a home mm-hmm. and a way for a young aboriginal and torres strait islander people to start identifying with themselves yeah. uh in a way that they never have before um and are coming back to what is normal for us and that's land um, certainly before seed, um, I, I'd done a lot of environmental work in the past, um, but now more than ever, I know that this is my purpose, mm. um, to tend to land, um, and certainly for the hundreds of people that have been through seed, um, they've been able to find a reconciled relationship with land, um, which is probably the greatest gift, um, that we can all have. But I mean, if we look at things from, um, from a project perspective, um, you know, we got in touch with the communities in Burralula, um back in about 2015, early 2016. And where's that? Where's that? Um, is in um, Northern Territory. It's one of the communities affected um, affected by uh, the issue of frac- fracking. fracking. So the Northern Territory um, 
recently had a moratorium on fracking. That's a ban, a temporary ban, and um, the Gunner government um, put in an independent inquiry. Now, Boralula um, was able to declare itself gas field free, um, but certainly the work that we've done at SEED is we've worked directly with that community and um, we've been able to empower the young people to go out there and be voices for the community um, and also uh, teach campaigning skills, um, facilitation skills, all that sort of a thing that will help them be as successful as possible when it comes to facing the threat of fracking because they have to face decision makers every single day. They have to face government. They have to face the fossil fuel companies. They have to face phony and corrupt um, people who who want to put them out. And um, certainly from our perspective... Um, you know, the work that we've done there, just actually um, helping those communities gain momentum um, is a work of success success for us. Yeah. Um, and we stand in solidarity, of course, with the Wangan and Jagalingu people as well in northern Queen- in central Queensland who face Adani also. Um, the Adani campaign is this big kind of... Um, thing in and of itself you know it's not just australia wide it's in it's international but our contribution there you know we work around election time we have conversations with people and politicians um and we annoy politicians which is really it can be really fun i'm watching millie chase after michael gunner in the northern territory (laughs) and and him running away a bit scared was um (laughs) it's 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 a good video um to watch in and of itself um but look, um, right now, um, where we're at, we're still building the movement. Yep. Um, but watching young people actually take on leadership um, within themselves and their communities has been the most heartening, I think, success story so far as seed. And our fight, um, we will we will press down harder and fight harder um, when it comes to fracking in the Northern Territory because that ban is now being lifted just after yeah. Easter, after mm. two years of of hard campaigning because we want a nationwide ban on fracking. Fracking's not good for us. It can't be practiced safely in any way possible. Um, And any regulation that any stakeholder, decision maker or politician um, says they're going to put down, we know regulations don't work either um, in this country. So, um, yeah, we're just going to work harder. But right now we want um, the world to know that climate change is a black issue it affects Indigenous people across the world, first and foremost. Yes, absolutely. Right now, um, it will affect Indigenous people the most, even though we're the least um, we're the least contributing because of the ways that we have lived before. Yes, and, and preserved the land and cared for it. That's right. Um, as opposed to the destruction of the last 230 years or more across the world, really, since uh, colonisation and capitalism has come in as That's a right. system. Okay, now if people want to, if there are any Aboriginal uh, young ones or non-Aboriginal young ones mm. who want to join AYCC or, or the Aboriginal kids who want to join C, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, sure. So um, we've actually got offices in uh, Brisbane and in Melbourne here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mainly operate out of Melbourne, um, but we're Australia-wide. Um, so you can get in touch with us through our Facebook page, Seed yep. um, Indigenous Youth Climate Network. Um, you can get in touch with us over our website, seedmob.org.au, um, or you can see us at an action um, around the place. We have actions all the time, and um, just having people come along and, and you know get involved there and, and sign up on our sheets 
um, you know, we'll get in contact with you as soon as possible and we'll get you into a, to a meeting or whatever it is that you feel like, um, whatever level you feel like that you'd like to participate in because this is a community-wide effort. It's not just um, core volunteers. We still need people that will just sign a petition yep. if that's all you want to do as well. Yep. So give us a, a number or an address they can come to. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, a phone number. Um, probably best to go through our website, yep. seedmob.org.au. Yep. Um, and you can also make donations there as well sure. um, through, through the website. Um, otherwise, our Facebook page, because social media, is, we're so active on Twitter and, and Facebook also. Um, I feel like they're a great way to stay in touch, but also it's it's the future. It's where black people have prospered now in this country. Twitter goes off. Mob can't <laughs> mob can't stay off it. So <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jay. Thanks so much for your time. For a young man to get up in the morning and be at the station, I was I'm impressed. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, yeah, thank you very much. Okay, we've come to the end of the program. So well, Kate's and technically we sort of have three minutes left. Yes, I'm going to play some music. Just. I am.